We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now, leave a message. They will return your call at 905-529-7165. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon, all one word, dot com. You can listen to old archive shows there and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Good morning, gentlemen. Good, Good to morning, see you. Scott. Good morning, Great Scott. Great to see you. And we've got a guest today. Yes, yes. Very fortunate here to have Bill Chornis. Now, he's been been with an IG Wealth Management for 30 years, mm-hmm. um, almost as much as Andy and I now. And Boy. basically, he has looked after a lot of the funds, the actual micro-investing that's gone on. We, we've set up portfolios as far as the investment planning goes. We shuffle it over to Winnipeg and let the experts manage it. And he has been one of the experts, done a fantastic job. 30 years experience in the global capital markets as currently a senior vice pres- president of investment strategy with IG Wealth Management, logging more than 100 speaking engagements a year. Wow. This guy gets around, mm. okay? We're very fortunate uh, for Bill to take his time out today. Um, other external organizations, financial organizations, chamber of commerce, private clubs, and universities. He's often called upon a media as an authority on financial matters. Been on many, many uh, radio and TV programs around the, over the years. And uh, it's nice to have uh, you know somebody that's backed up their years of experience, both as a broker, a fund manager, and now as just a, a strategist of what to do behind the scenes in terms of investing. So again, uh, here we are with uh, Bill Chornis. Good morning. Hi, Bill. Hello, Bill. Now, right now, we're getting a, a little bit of a, you know, if you will, a little anxiousness, I would say, from, you know, just the general clientele. The newspapers are certainly picking on up on it, the media, and it seems to be a lot of noise out there in the markets, whether it be, you know, lately Brexit or, or tariffs or you, you name it. You can probably go through a bunch of them yourself. Well, you're right. Like, there's always a lot of noise, a lot of short-term friction in the market. But I, I would offer that right now, uh, certainly in the conventional media, there's a lot of issues that are being put in front of uh, not only the individual investor, but the professional investor as well. Like, I've got a list here that I just jotted down, and I just, you know, I'll just run through it quickly. Sure. But if if you looked at this list in January, and it starts off with there's a global economic slowdown, we've got trade wars, which have led to currency wars, we've got inverted yield curves now, hmm. we've got $16 trillion of negative yielding bonds globally, gold is at a six-year high, oil's down 20% from its high, uh, the U.S. deficit has grown 27% in the last 10 months. Uh, We've got an earnings slowdown. We've got civil unrest in Hong Kong. We had an Argentine election that probably is still controversial. We've got uh, North Korea testing nukes. (laughs) We've got Brexit. We've got Russia. We've got a president who constantly tweets about the market. Mm. Uh, We've got volatility. And and that list is not exhaustive. But if I looked at that at the beginning of the year and said, what kind of a year are we going to have? I'd say it was pretty tough sledding. And I think that's, I think, to be honest, most clients are looking at that without looking at the numbers and saying, wow, you know, I hear this noise. How much are we down, Don? Yeah, so we're up 17% on the S&P 500 in U.S. dollars year to date. (laughs) And the Canadian stock market, similarly, not up quite as much. But uh, hit a new high, uh, you know, in recent weeks. Just a regular year with lots of noise. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that being the case, you know, if you take a look at what the actual investors are doing with the markets rising like this, there must be a lot of people going into the markets. I think the opposite is true, unfortunately. Um, what we're seeing generally is that at least equity-based mutual funds 
uh, are in net redemptions pretty much across the board. So again, going what we often go talk about is the Delbar reports and how you know people are their own worst enemies. You know, if they just left it alone, they would be doing so much better. Say the average return would be nine, yet their portfolio may have only averaged five. Here's another perfect example that people are doing the wrong things. They're pulling money out while it's going up. Right. So and and that's been consistent for the last ten years. If you go back to what is now affectionately referred to as the Great Financial Crisis or the death of capitalism <laughs> back in 2009, uh, for the last 10 years, we use a lot of, just, just for context, we use a lot of U.S. data just because it's more granular, it's produced uh, more often. And, but in terms of trend, Canada is exactly the same. If you look at cash flows uh, into U.S.-based uh, equity funds, uh, um, they're all negative for the last 10 years. In fact, over a trillion dollars has been removed from equity mutual funds in the U.S., and about 1.4 trillion has flowed into fixed income over the same period of time. So they're leaving the stock market in favor, I guess, of the fixed income alternative, believing that they're insulating themselves from some kind of risk or, or this list of potential issues that we've just kind of run through quickly. Yeah, and you, you look at that opportunity cost, okay? If they're pulling money out of something that's earned 17% this year, and they put it into something what's earning maybe one and a half. Uh, what are the 10-year bonds paying these days? Well, in Canada, about 1.4 right now, but you got 2% inflation. So essentially, you've got mm -hmm. a negative real yield. So you're, you're literally taking something that's making money and moving it to something that's actually negative after inflation right now. Well, if I go back to just using a 10-year time frame and, and not using the absolute bond, and this is fun with math, admittedly, <laughs> but if, I, if I said that I constructed a portfolio on December 31st, uh, 2008, right. and I put a quarter of my capital into the S&P 500, a quarter into the MSCI world, a quarter into the TSX, and the final piece into um, European equity. Okay, so just for the uh, the users don't know those short those short terms, one would be a U.S. stock market, one would be a Canadian stock market, one would be a European market, and one and a would, global and, and a global. global market. Okay. So over that ten-year period of time, I would have had, and I just let it run. I, I ignored everything that I heard <laughs> about the last ten years about the coming recessions and all these problems, and I just let it work. Um, your compound annual rate of return would be about 11.5% in Canadian dollars total return over the last 10 years. Hmm. You get 11% a year for 10 years in a less than 2% inflation environment. Problem is nobody got it because they're all going the other way. <laughs> and, and again, this is where human nature takes over. Unfortunately, all this noise that we call is actually getting in the way of them becoming financially independent. And I know Andy and I, we talk to, to our clients all the time, is staying the course, staying, staying to the program. We've got a financial plan here. There's a tax <coughs> plan. There's an insurance plan. We've got a retirement plan. We've gone through we've gone cash flow. We've gone through everything. This is the investment plan. And you've got a lot of do-it-yourselfers out there now thinking, okay, I'm going to try to save on some fees. And what is the real cost of them, say, if they are just the norm, what are they doing? They're pulling out money while the market's been rising. Right. So you mentioned the Delbar study, and that's, that's proof, certainly. I think that what, what we all have to try to assess is what do we believe real risk is? Because when, when you're trying to time entry and exit points, you know, the idea is I'm protecting, I'm trying to protect my capital and insulate it from some short-term element of risk, whether it be Brexit or recession or whatever. 
and that I can somehow know when to get out and when to get back in. Mm-hmm. But I think the real risk is not a short-term drawdown in the stock market. I believe real risk is not having the capital to retire in the lifestyle that you become accustomed to. Yes, absolutely. And and talking about the recession you mentioned there, there's a lot more noise about the recession recently. And it's almost like, okay, we've got this inverted yield curve, which I guess, uh, you know, the long-term yields of, bond, say, 10-year bonds is, is a lower rate of return than, say, the short-term of, say, right. a two-year bond. Yep. And so they've been indicators of, I guess, recessions for the years. Well, you know, how does this work? It seems to be hitting the news. It's almost like it's like the bell's ringing, and I guess there's going to be a recession according to that. Well, <laughs> from what you read or, or what you hear uh, in conventional TV and things like that, that would certainly be what you would think, is that, uh-oh, this thing inverted, and that means the recession is here today. Uh, first of all, an inverted curve, it has been fairly timely in predicting recessions, but it, it is not the imminent recession. The recession could be anywhere from 6 to 24 months away. Mm-hmm. So, so taken in the context of time, you know, how valuable as an indicator is it? Uh, it, it, it is one piece of information that goes along with others, uh, certainly, but uh, it doesn't have a great deal of timing efficacy, if you will. It, it's not a good timing indicator. It just says that there's one out there. And, and you know what? The risk of one is always, <laughs> there's yes. always one out there sooner or later. Can you explain what inverted yield curve means? What does that mean to the average person? So just that short-term rates are higher than long-term rates. Right. So the, the, the idea being that uh, I would rather invest in a fixed income, uh, a bond, for instance, for two years as opposed to committing my capital for 10 years. Mm. So you get this where short-term rates are, are higher than a longer-term rate. And it's counterintuitive because if you're tying up your money for a longer period of time, you should be compensated for that. So long rates should always be higher than short rates. Well, and again, what, one other comment people often say is, well, this bull market has been going on for 10 years now. It's kind of funny, though. Those are the same people that said, well, it's going to come down right after the 0809 financial crisis. They said, well, it's not going to last. It's going to you know, go right back down. People weren't involved in it. So they've been in and out of this for the last 10 years. But it's been a fairly predictable uptick for 10 years. But... You know, it's 10 years old. It must be getting long in the tooth. It, when does this uh, bull market just run out of gas? Well, there's a, there's a Wall Street axiom that says the bull markets don't die of old age. <laughs> and, and it's true. Um, there's, there's a, you, have to, you have to go back and think about what, what was really happening here or, or what is the stock market all about. And the stock market is just a collection of businesses, right? And each one of those businesses is an independent bucket of business risk, if you will. GE is different than Walmart, is different than Suncor, is different than the Royal Bank. So how do you value any business? You value a business based on the profits that it is generating and the profits that you hope it will continue to generate and grow into the future. So if you go and you take a look at corporate profits for the last 10 years, you'll see that, uh, in fact, for the last 20 years, go back to the year 2000, uh, X... Uh, 2008 9 uh, essentially the profit pool has hit new historic highs every year since hmm. so so if the value of the business is determined by the profits it's generating and it's generating more historic profits than it ever has and that is 
uh, just reflected in an increasing value of the business, that would suggest the stock market should go up. Right, because really the stock market is simply a, a, a perceived value of that of the businesses all yeah. added together. Exactly. So it's it's a relatively simple concept if you really think about it. Mm-hmm. So then the question becomes, well, how important is the concern of, well, let's just say Brexit. How important is Brexit to Walmart's ability to generate an economic profit? Right. Right. So you start tinkering around with those notions. And maybe and a small piece of it, but maybe there's an opportunity also elsewhere that offsets well, that. Yeah, and, and, and every business is not going to have some exposure to Brexit or whatever th- that concern is. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. And joining us on the phone, Bill Chornis, Senior Vice President, uh, Senior VP Investment Strategist with IG Private Wealth Management. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now, leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165. And check out their website at andyanddon.com. You can listen to old archive shows there and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Uh, today, our guest is Bill Chornis, Senior Vice President, Investment Strategy, IG Private Wealth Management. Joining Andy and Don today, we're going to talk about asset allocation. Hi, Bill. It's Andy. Andy, and I just, um, you know, even this week in meeting with uh, a listener who wanted a second opinion on their portfolio, and this is something that we see pretty commonly is the overweight or sensitivity to owning Canadian stocks or Canadian investments. And in this particular client situation, you know, the the actual allocation was 51% Canadian stocks, 25% fixed income, and 12% international and U.S. So it was, um, you know, it, it tends to be this Canadian bias that we have, and we see this over and over again as we review portfolios. And when you think about the importance of the asset allocation process and having a proper recipe, if you will, what what uh, what makes sense for someone in terms of trying to rebalance or get closer to a proper asset allocation model with their portfolio? So I think you've got to consider what is the Canadian equity market relative to the global equity market. And it's about two and a half, three percent of the global equity market. And to your point, the Canadian dollar investor, the domestic Canadian investor, is grossly overweight Canada. Uh, in fact, your, the client that you mentioned is slightly underweight the Canadian average because the Canadian average is about 60% in Canada. Wow. So yeah. Just think about what that means. It, it, it suggests that the Canadian investor is 30 times overweight the exposure to the, <clears throat> the Canadian market and the global equity market. Right. So if, if, you're always going to have a greater exposure to the, your domestic equity market just because you're not taking currency risk and you're not taking uh, political risk. Theoretically, if you didn't like the politics, uh, you would leave. So you've removed two risks, but you've taken a massive overweight position. And if we think about it, most, not all, but most investment strategies are built to satisfy uh, longer-term quality of life or income issues. So typically, at the end of the day, we're saving for retirement. So I always think that anybody's investment uh, plan should look like a 
pension plan. Mm-hmm. So then we take a look at what a Canadian pension plan looks like, a big one, like the, like the CPP or like OMERS or any of the big, huge plans. They have, for the last decade and a half, they've been reducing their Canadian equity exposure dramatically to where it, it's most of these big plans have less than, certainly less than 20%, and in some cases less than 10% of their asset allocation dedicated to Canadian equities. And even at 10%, they're three, four times overweight the Canadian right, market. Right, right, But But I but, guess they don't have currency um, volatility, so I guess that's one thing in their court, but other but, than that. But if you think about the the other part of it, that not having the exposures to the bigger elements, for instance, the U.S. market, Europe, uh, Asia, uh, all those other options, the opportunity costs have been very, very large because over the last decade, the Canadian stock market has been somewhat of an underachiever Mm. relative to the others, Uh, certainly relative to global and certainly relative to uh, the U.S. market. So... And then, and then, you know, if we could take it a step further, there's a lot of commentary that goes around investing in the U.S., particularly in today's environment with a lot of concern around, let's just call it political risk, <laughs> uh, that, you know, surrounding the, the president and tweets and things like that. But if you look at what the U.S. market really is, if we take a look at the S&P 500, I would offer that the S&P 500, the broadest measure of U.S. stocks, is basically a global index. Right. It's the home to the biggest companies in the world. Right, right. And, and the, when when the suggestion is, well, I don't want to have U.S. exposure because I'm not sure what the president's going to do, what you're saying is, is that I don't want exposure to some of the biggest and best companies in the world. Hmm. And I think that that has a heavy cost of opportunity tied. It certainly has in the past. And I think part of this, uh, the question then comes up in, in looking at their asset allocation model and, re- and agreeing in general that they're overweight Canada there, the, the sort of counter argument, well, if Canada's underperformed for the last decade and the U.S. has outperformed for the last decade, maybe this is the time I should be staying in Canada as opposed to rotating out. Well, you, you, that may well be founded, but do you need to be 30 times overweight to make <laughs> exactly. it work for you? Like, I think, yeah, I, exactly. I think that, that it's a relative thing. And the, the other consideration has to be what are the components of the Canadian stock market? Well, where so else, where why else is can it underachieved? But, but well, where because else can it you has get a disproportionate exposure to the commodity base, to oil and gas, copper, zinc, nickel, gold, things like that. You know, the Canadian stock market is not very broadly diversified. It, the metals, energy, and financial services are the three industry groups that make up 75% of the weight in that index. So that's your exposures. That's exactly. And that's where clients typically end up with a pool of bank stocks and uh, and maybe some energy stocks as well. Well, and th- and one of the reasons is that's where liquidity resides in that market too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it is not a big liquid market. It, it certainly has uh, all kinds of uh, value attached to it, but you have to understand that that one of the reasons why it has underperformed other parts of uh, the global equity markets is because of commodity exposure and uh, you know and a disproportionate weight in those uh, segments, energy and uh, metals and mines, relative to other indexes. Right. So, in summary, if 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 we were 
talking with a client or um, a, a listener who is overweight in Canada, recognizes they're overweight in Canada, maybe perhaps the process is then uh, taking steps to gradually reduce that exposure over uh, a period of time and, and creating a more balanced asset allocation model. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, I'm not a planner, but uh, I also don't think that you draw a line in the sand and say, today's the day. Mm, right. right. That we're going to make massive shifts in, in in one day because, you know, it goes to a timing issue then. So if we decide, if, if one decides that they want to, you know, broaden out their exposures and say over a certain time frame, I, I want to move from X to Y and, and we're going to do it over the next six months or eight months or whatever. And, and we're going to end up in the position I want to be one year down the road. I think that's a more prudent approach. So you're still taking advantage of any movement within the, you know, the Canadian market. You're not abdicating or yes, yeah. wholesaling out of it. So, and, and and then the final element of that, we're always counterbalancing that against any tax implications of making switches. But it uh, sometimes that ties people's hands, and they, they they may end up with things they they shouldn't have because of tax implications to making a decision. Tax is always a tough one. Yeah. But we've got lots of experience that suggests that the investment decision is more important than the tax decision. Mm-hmm. And I'll date myself here, but I'll go back to using um, Canada's great tech stock, Northern Telecom, as an example. Nortel, yes. Northern Telecom. Did so back in 98, 2000, you know, there was uh, Northern Telecom became the biggest weight in the Canadian index. It was a performance had huge impact on um many investors, including employees in Northern Telecom, and they would always refuse to sell uh, based on the idea, well, for two reasons. They'd say, well, I'm not going to get out of my position in Northern Telecom. Why would I? Number one, it only goes up. And, and number two, if I sell, I have to pay capital gains tax. Correct. Well, essentially, it went to zero. Yes. Yeah. So Solved I, one you problem. get up every morning and say, well, thank God I didn't pay capital gains tax. <laughs> yeah, great. Yeah, 50% True. of something is a lot better than 100% of nothing. Exactly. And uh, and lately, you're seeing uh, not necessarily the telecoms, but you're seeing the healthcare or else known as the pot stocks. They were uh, they were the darling of the markets, I say, a year ago. Um, seem to have done a little less lately, their bill. Yeah, well, they've <laughs> they've had a rough go particularly this year, many of them just on balance, call it down pet in half, down by 50% or so from their from their highs. Would you, um, would you say that's more because it's now looking as a, they're actually an investment reg- rather than a speculation? Yeah, you know, it's, it's tough to figure out in the short run exactly what happened here, but it's interesting because the day that uh, marijuana was legalized, the stocks all dropped. Right. And, and everybody had been positioning into these stocks on the basis of, hey, when they're legal, these things are going to rock and roll. And, you know, so what's, what's happened, and, and I'll just use it collectively in the space as opposed to pointing to any particular company, but as the business is unfolding, and there's a real business there, but none of them are making any money. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very hard to value. If You know, I said earlier, the way you value a business, or the way at least that we look at valuing a business is based on its profits and its ability to generate profit in the future. So when there is no profit at the time, 
it's very hard to determine what is the real value at this moment. So you're looking well off into the future, and when you're looking well off into the future and you're pricing an equity based on you know something quite far down the road, any hiccup tends to have a big impact on that, that price um, because now the future becomes a little more uh, cloudy, if you mm-hmm. will. And we've seen that. Yeah, so, we, we were uh, saying way particularly back. Particularly in the marijuana stocks, they are still very early stage. We've seen a, a couple of them make some pretty big mistakes, I think. There's mm-hmm. been a lot of press around it. And so collectively, um, the, the investor ire has been meted out on them by cutting them in half in terms of price. Mm-hmm. Yes, and you go back to, you know, say the late 99, 2000, where we had the tech boom. It was a similar thing where there weren't profits, the dot-com boom. And it was almost like there was a party going on and, uh, you know, you didn't want to miss this party. All your friends were making money in dot-coms and uh, I got to be part of it. I kind of feel the same way with marijuana stocks, except maybe the party was a little better. Um, but uh, <laughs> but at the end of the day, they weren't making any money. There was more food. <laughs> yeah. they, um, so I, I think that the, that the, uh, the slight difference here is that there is a real business and there was a real business in tech sure um and and we've seen the ones that survived i mean they've been huge stocks right google's and the amazons and things like that um but the um back in the the 90s anything that could put dot you know was all of a sudden a billion dollar company right and there had the idea was is that investors were willing to fund losses in perpetuity, hmm. as opposed to waiting for something to generate an economic profit. And, and I think in the marijuana stocks, it's known that there is a business here that someday will be profitable. The question is when and who are the ones who, are, who will survive, because it won't be all of them. Yeah, and that, that part is similar to the dot-coms. There was some that made it through, and they ended up doing extremely well. Um, they all took a beating for a while, but most of them fell to the wayside. And it might be the same with marijuana stocks for that matter. But again, I think the investors start to see risk. They don't see risk when it's going up like crazy. They only, right. see, they only see risk when it starts to drop. But the greater risk is the faster it's going up, the chances are it's even going to go down even faster. Yeah, absolutely. And, mm. and talking of which, we're, we're seeing right now a, a big disparity between growth investments and value investments. And if you could explain them both... Um, and then, you know, kind of go over why growth is outperforming value at this time. So growth is outperformed for probably one of the longest periods in, uh, uh, particularly over the last 10 years, that's uh, has outperformed value stocks. Value stocks generally are more mature businesses. They're companies that do have profits. They're probably paying a dividend. And what that means is that if like you're paying a dividend, you cannot reinvest your capital at a rate equal to or greater than your current return on capital, right? Mm -hmm. So you're mature. And so you're probably a little more stable, maybe not as fun uh, to watch (laughs) in terms of price dynamics and things like that in the stock market. So growth businesses are on a rapidly accelerating growth curve. Typically, you know, they might be against an economy that's growing two and a half, three percent, these businesses could be growing 30, 40, 50 percent year over year, some even greater. Mm. But that, that goes back to the idea that, that they're not profitable, in, in some are, uh, 
but generally these hyper growth curves that businesses are so they're taking their capital and very very rapidly having to reinvest it in the business trying to scale it up and scale it up and what that does is um, you know they're building uh, a, a business very very quickly which investors are quite intrigued with uh, and are willing to pay up for but when you get a uh, any type of I mentioned a hiccup in the business model or you get some kind of uh, event in the economy that slows that growth rate down uh, as quickly as they accelerate it in price they become the first ones that uh, get hit in price right. because they're harder to value and there's no safety net of dividends there's no safety uh, net of track record right so, so a, a good example of growth business would be something like Amazon, I suppose, or uh, Google. Yeah. Uh, Netflix. But, but those are businesses that are are growing very, very rapidly, but but are generating um, and be starting to generate economic profits, right? Right. And Shopify. They're still got big multiples tied to them, just collectively. Um, so they, the, the price that one is willing to pay for that future earnings stream, but, but their earnings are growing rapidly. So the, the idea would be that they will grow into their price right. over time. Mm -hmm. But with higher risk because they higher are... Higher risk, absolutely. Because now they're projecting this high growth rate in the future. And if it happens to go backwards for a bit, you'll see massive price reduction in that stock. So you see it in... Um, uh, a couple of places you can see it in Netflix when Netflix comes out and their subscriber growth isn't what those uh, who who try to forecast these things they miss their numbers uh, the market can be pretty merciless to the, <laughs> to the price of that stock we are planning your financial future I'm Scott Thompson Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG private wealth management call now leave a message they'll return your call at 905-529-7165 and joining us today uh, Bill Chornis senior VP investment strategy IG private wealth management and more when we return we are planning your financial future I'm Scott Thompson Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG private wealth management call now leave a message they'll return your call at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. Joining us is Bill Chornis, Senior Vice President, Investment Strategy with IG Private Wealth Management. Want to talk about ETFs? Yeah, Bill, one of the things that, um, you know, when I first experienced or learned about ETFs, exchange-traded funds, basically what, what my vision of this was, was simply a mirror or a, a duplication of what we would see in an index, like the Toronto Stock Market Index. Right. And so you were buying a bundle of stocks that was familiar to everybody. And uh, yet at the same time now, there are so many ETFs that now they've really specialized in little boutique type of uh, ETF uh, indexes. So it's, it's really now almost like buying um, another mutual fund or another stock that's got a different, uh, they're all unique and they all have different uh, objectives as well. I think that there's certainly been an explosion of uh, ETFs available. And, and I think like any investment, I think first the starting place should be that it's incumbent on the investor to understand exactly what it is that they own mm. and what is the risk embedded in the ETF or the mutual fund for that matter, or the individual stock that they own. But when it comes to ETFs, you know, there, there seems to be a, um, a premise that the ETF 
is plain vanilla and that it is uh, inherently liquid, that it can be bought and sold on a moment's notice at any point in time. And I think that some of them can, yes, uh, but as you mentioned, as that product suite is being built out, they're becoming more and more specific to smaller areas of the market or more and more exotic areas of the market. And that means that they're carrying incremental risk. Uh, the one that I would point to, for instance, it's uh, bringing in massive cash flows right now in the United States is, is the high-yield ETF. And the idea, you know, we, we live in a low-yield environment, a low-interest rate environment, so uh, understandably, uh, savers, investors are reaching for yield, I guess, and they see a posted yield on a high-yield ETF. It looks quite attractive, certainly greater than what they can get in a savings account or a 10-year bond, for that matter, and are moving uh, capital at, at a ferocious rate, quite frankly, uh, into the high-yield ETF. The problem with that, as I see it, uh, is that high-yield bonds, what the ETF is buying, are not that liquid. Mm. And so you have a massive amount of money flowing in, which means that the ETF provider has to go out and buy the high-yield bond, which bids up the price of the bond, which shows up in the performance of, <laughs> of mm. the, mm -hmm. the fund. So uh, that's all well and good. But what happens um, if we hit a drawdown in the stock market or we hit an economic bump, uh, what happens is is the interest rate on high yield is one of the very first things uh, to collapse because, by definition, they're big credit risks. And when I started in this business, high yield were called junk bonds right. for <laughs> context. And we found out that people didn't really like buying junk. <laughs> so, so what we did is we changed the name and we said, how much high yield do you want? And they said, well, I like high yield. <laughs> <laughs> but they, but it, takes, uh, it takes away the risk by you when you call it that way. Well, yeah, I mean, it, but that's what it's about. And how liquid is that that vehicle? Or, you know, there's all kinds of, there's a double leveraged oil ETF. There's a double lever or a reverse leveraged uh, fixed income ETF. <laughs> and and it, it, they're, they're, they're getting money. Oh, so sure. people are willing to invest in them. But my concern is that, you know, do I understand the risk that I'm taking here? And maybe they do. And if they do, that's fine. But I just have a sense that maybe some of these things uh, are not very well understood because they're they're quite exotic in the way that they're built. If there was a, if there was a run on a junk bond ETF or a high yield bond ETF, um, and, and now people want to get their money out, the uh, ETF manufacturer operator is trying to you know sell into that into a down market. Maybe liquidity is an issue. What does that look like to the average investor? Are they told, well, you can't have your money right now, you're going to have to sit and wait? Well, we've seen, um, we've seen similar instances in the past. Um, we, there's a, in fact, there's a hedge fund over in Europe right now that's having a liquidity event. It's been happening for the last couple of months where they bought uh, a lot of very, very illiquid positions, equity positions, uh, in a company and they've been hit with redemptions and they can't monetize the equity positions that they're in so they had to just stop uh, halt halt, uh, halt trading and like you, you can't get out right yeah the, the other concern with ETFs I see is uh, what is the average length of somebody holding an, an exchange traded fund rather than say a managed fund a mutual fund 
I think that's that's another issue, Don. Absolutely, is that um, ETFs have become somewhat of a trading vehicle. Almost and like I, a stock. I, I don't know exactly what the average holding period is, but I believe that because of this uh, this idea that they're inherently liquid at any time I need or want, that um, that, that they're used as a trading vehicle. And interestingly enough, when we talk about cost and they show the cost of an ETF, that is not including the cost of trading. Ah, okay. Trading costs get piled on on top of that. I see. So what I, I look at is if in the average client out there is looking at ETFs, and you're seeing a, a, a slew of commercials talking about different companies that are offering, well, they're less expensive, we can save you fees, but what's the actual client return? Similar to what we talked about earlier, well, if the client is holding onto these a lot less in terms of length of time, then their return is going to be worse. Is trying to time the market. They're going to try to time the market. And then exactly. at the end of the day, their performance and their opportunity cost, again, given this year it's gone up 17%, how much money has flown out of these and put on the sidelines? And now they're kicking themselves that they didn't see this return that has, has happened all year. Yeah. So you got to, you know, if we, I talked about 2009 and things like that. If we just go back and think about the last 10 years, I mean, it's actually something that I've been, kind of pondering is what is the investor experience for the last 10 years or even the professional investor um, the analysts that we have uh, in the mutual fund complex or in the active management complex uh, what is their experience their experience is a bull market for 10 years and they've never seen a real big downturn They've never seen, uh, Don, you and I have been around for a while, as you mentioned earlier. <laughs> I mean, I still bar bear the scars of October 19th, 1987. Yes, <laughs> yes. And, and these, these are issues that are burned indelibly into my mind. We're going to have to take a quick break here. going to put you uh, on pause there, Bill. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Bill Chornis is with us, Senior, VP, uh, Senior Vice President, Investment Strategy with IG, and we're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now. Leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. Joining us, Bill Chornis, Senior VP, Investment Strategy, IG Private Wealth Management. We're going to talk about tariffs. This should be interesting. Yes. Yeah. And I look at, you mentioned earlier, Bill, how uh, you know bull markets or rising markets don't die of old age. It's usually some event. This event here has me a little concerned. You know, these tariffs that uh, President Trump uh, keeps saying, well, we're, we're getting at the Chinese. Well, who's it really hurting? To my way of looking, it's the average consumer. Well, at the end of the day, it is, for sure. Uh, we are a net beneficiary. The con global consumer is a net beneficiary of global trade mm -hmm. because what, what it does is it uh, maximizes productivity. It's an efficient use of capital. So what we get every year, basically, is an improved good, like more value added at a lower price. Mm -hmm. You know, just think about uh, the example that I like to use is a plasma screen TV. You know, you go to Costco, and uh, at the beginning of the year, the, the newest plasma screen TV, you know, maybe it's 5K, and it's got this many pixels, and it's this big, and all that, and it's 1500 bucks. And, and last year's TV that was 1500 bucks is probably 800 or $900. But what did we get there for 1500 bucks? Well, we got this TV with a whole bunch of more value added that 
will decline in price very, very rapidly, but there will be a new technologically more advanced one next year. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's let's start slapping duties on the TVs and say, well, what we want to do is we're trying to put those duties on to protect um, our domestic interests in terms of employment, right? Because we lost all these great mm -hmm. jobs to China or South Korea or Vietnam or whatever. We want to bring those back. Well, first of all, if we're going to build plasma screen TVs in Flint, Michigan, let's say, mm -hmm. the, the job that you bring the production back, uh, it's not going to create uh, a tremendous amount of jobs that, that to fulfill the jobs that left the auto industry because it's going to come back as automation. So it's mm -hmm. not going to mm -hmm. achieve one of the ultimate goals of creating massive amounts of jobs. But the other thing it's going to do is the cost base in Flint, Michigan, of producing that TV is going to be substantially higher than the cost base of producing it in South Korea or China. So now that $1,500, and I, I just throw a number out there, that $1,500 TV that we're used to and we're used to buying last year's model, whatever, now to get that TV, maybe it's $3,000 or $4,000 because it's you know, built in the USA. And how many are you going to want? Hmm. Right? So the, the tariff issue is, is concerning, absolutely. And, and you'll note that when these tariff discussions, you know, it's like uh, ping pong right now, back and forth between China and the U.S. Every day it's a little different twist. But you'll notice that it has created a lot of volatility in the market around these discussions because, mm -hmm. you know, we live in a global world. And, and I think it's very, very hard to start trying to protect domestic interests by putting up trade barriers. And, and the inefficiencies that it creates, I think markets probably well understand, and that creates the concern and says, well, we know that that is not the most efficient way of producing goods and services, and ultimately the cost is to the consumer. And if the consumer decides to stop spending because the price or the value proposition is no longer there, that has a tremendous negative impact on what happens in the economy. Just take the U.S., for instance. U.S. GDP, or the measure of annual growth in the United States, 70% of U.S. GDP is individual consumption. It's us buying cars and TVs. Right. And so you knock that off the rails... And that is what throws the economy into a, uh, into a downturn or into a recession. And everybody's standard living goes down because now instead of 1000 1500 for that TV, now it's 2500 Well, there's $1,000 they can't spend on something else. Right, absolutely. And that extra $1,000 then churns into, keeps the economy going. And, and talking about recessions, you know, what is a recession? Is it just negative growth, is it not? Negative growth. Two yeah, quarters so of negative growth. economic definition of a recession is two quarters back to back of negative growth. But by the time you've identified that, typically, yeah. you know, you're, you're partway through that event as it is. Um, and then the question is, you know, like, how, how, how long, how deep is that recession? Uh, these are all uh, imponderables, really, in the, in the short run. Uh, but I think that what we've seen is that the periods of growth seem to be extending and the, the periods of downturn or, or uh, recession periods have been compressing. And I, would, I think we can 
allocate some of that change in structure of recessions and growth periods to the uh, impact of technology, the ability to move capital very, very efficiently, very, very quickly, um, and to respond to these events but in, uh, probably in a more timely fashion. But wouldn't you th actually think of a recession almost as a good thing sometimes? Like uh, I, I remember Warren Buffett saying, you know, when the tide goes out, you find the naked swimmers, <laughs> okay? It's almost a cleansing effect. It gets rid of all the leverage, all the bad things out there. Absolutely. And, and then you got a new starting point for the markets to go back up. So, and, you know, when, when you think about it, that the economy and the market to a certain degree is a binge and purge mechanism. Mm -hmm. so, so you binge, and just like anything, when you binge too long, you start to build in some excesses, and then you've got to rebase everything. You go back to 2008, 2009, which was a very, very difficult time in, in the economy and certainly in global markets, but if you take a look at it, um, you know, I, a term that I think is appropriate is, is that basically the great financial crisis was a global margin call because we had so many grossly over leveraged players in the game, broker dealers leveraged at 40 to one, things like that, that th those excesses had to be rebalanced. And you know what? And this is why we have guys like Bill Chornis looking after the fares of our clients on Andy and I's behalf. And so that we, he does all that work. We just get to plan it. And, and that's why you need a financial plan. Bill Chornis has been with us, Senior Vice President, Investment Strategy, IG Private Wealth Management. We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson, Andy Lister, and Don Fox here from IG Private Wealth Management, 905-529-7165. Bill and Andy and Don, thanks so much. Thanks, thanks Scott. Scott. See you Thanks, next Scott. week.